It's the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast, our September, mid-September review episode. And it's very exciting because we have a new first-time contributor. Patty, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. I'm Patty Devery. Uh, I had another theater website and podcast, Patty and Emily, for about seven years, which is no longer. But if you care to check out our back catalog, it's at www.pattyandemily.com. And I'm excited to talk theater again. It's been a minute. Yay. Well, we are so happy to have you. And a blast from the past. Oren Squire is here. Oren, where have you been? What have you been up to? I was in L.A. the past year working on This Is Us on NBC as a writer. And also I had a play, Obamaology, at Skylight Theater in L.A. Another play I was commissioned by Seattle Public Theater. I just came back from workshopping and writing. And I'm back here working on a musical for Def Jam Universal at night and The Good Fight on CBS during the day. So managing to balance the TV and theater and trying to complete this outline for a film <laughs> to have the trifecta going and flowing this year while doing Maximum Podcasts and writing reviews for New York Theater Review.com. We're so happy that you're back. Okay. I'm and glad to be back. You were at my going away party in June, last June. Yes. And you said, oh, you're just going to go away and be gone forever. And people were telling me that. And I said very clearly, no, 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 I'm going to be back. I'm not dazed and amazed by sunshine i'm from miami <laughs> i was ah. like i know what la is and la was wonderful but i was like i'm gonna be back the second there's a job in new york city that just wasn't last mm -hmm. june and the good fights first season was in la oh. the second season they're in new york city hmm. that well, was initially I've, the job i got i didn't know that it was in la I, yeah i'm happy to be wrong and i'm happy you were <laughs> not dazed and amazed by the sunny weather of los angeles it's beautiful <laughs> Great sushi and avocados, I will sure. say. Yeah, that's that's those are appealing factors for sure. Okay, so we've all gone to the theater and we're here to talk about what we've seen and what we thought about it. And we are starting with The Rape of the Sabine Women by Grace B. Mathias. Patty. This play is by Michael Yates Crowley, which may be confusing because the title has a different author in it. The the conceit of the play, the basic story is Grace B. Mathias, who is our storyteller, has been raped and is dealing with the aftermath of that rape. She's in high school. She's 15 years old. She's dealing with her how her teachers are affected by it, how her counselor is affected by it, how her friends and family are affected by it. But it that's like the basic storytelling element, but it's also told with sort of a satirical voice. And what did you think about it? I thought it was great. Of the three that we saw, this, I think, affected me the most. I liked I liked the sort of disjointed storytelling of it where it was a very serious subject matter, but there were moments of comedy in it that were pure comedy, that were funny, and also that were funny in the moment, and then you sit back and you realize, oh, God, what are we laughing at right now? One of the interesting things to me was the character of Jeff, who is the rapist. And also, I should say, it's never unclear, I felt, that she was raped. The question of whether she was raped or not is not addressed at all. She just was. Even though they don't show it, which I think is good, because there is some... It's not gratuitous. There is nudity, and I think it's necessary and affecting. But there's also no gratuitous like for trigger warnings there's no actual violence uh, like 
on her in the show. Um, but that it was this like nice, affable guy who did it. And he would be the kind that people would be like, that kid's so nice. He would never do anything like this. I can't imagine. But everything in this society has sort of set him up. Not inevitable. It's certainly not inevitable. But to, to this, for this to be a path that he ends up taking. And I thought that that was sort of an important thing that was addressed that's not always addressed. And the, his dad in a later scene mentions that as well in a rare moment of clarity that um, what, what are we doing to have caused this to happen? And then it's like snap back to reality and he's like, but my son was a good son. Yeah. What did you think, Oren? Uh Disclaimer, I was in the class uh, below Michael when he brought this play in in its rough form Ooh. at Juilliard. So I actually read some of the jock roles, uh, the cop in the park oh, really? and other things around the table. And then a few weeks later saw it in the school-wide reading that you're allowed every year at school. And so this is one of the rare chances where I've seen something in its initial stages, yeah. then in the workshop stage, and now in a production stage. So I'm coming at it slightly different from the average audience member. Uh, I really enjoyed it and the changes that were made, but that's not important to the average audience member because <laughs> they're not going to know like the changes that happened throughout sure. it. I felt like it was this chop suey, toxic brew of rape culture. And it was silly, funny, dark, sad, uh, informative, and by the end, a bit transformative. I feel like I'm Jesse Jackson this morning. <laughs> Rhyming on time. But uh, the, the whole idea of rape culture is this mixture of misogyny, homophobia, homoeroticism, and violence and aggression that all blend together and I think there's so many wonderful scenes where he captures that with one of the jocks who's like, hey, let's go take a shower to the other jock who's mm. really excited about shower time. The locker room mentality that's both hateful of women and fetishizing them and scared of women and violent towards them and pornographic in mm. the way they view the other gender. Uh, the firehouse scene, which is straight out of like a softcore gay porn on purpose <laughs> yeah. where it's lit like a fire in the background. And the guys are lifting weights and they're like, women aren't supposed to be here. And there's scene and scene again that repeats this theme of this weird American form of misogyny that's pornographic, that's action movie violent, that's homoerotic and extremely homophobic. And then it takes all that aggression out on young women. Hmm. And then once you are considered no longer uh, attractive, then he sort of just says, get out of my face, you old hag. And we've seen that in public spotlight with people like Hillary Clinton. Once you're no longer, to quote Tina Fey, fuckable, mm. you sort of get discarded. But when you are in that stage where you are fuckable, you are faced with this constant assault from boys that don't feel confident, that don't know how they're supposed to act, and that are raised on pornography. Uh, pretty much when I was growing up, pornography was something that was rare and special. Now, because everyone has a smartphone, 
90% of uh, people by the age of like 11 or 12 have seen porn. Uh-oh, I have nieces and nephews. <laughs> they, wow. they have seen porn, and that actually warps your mind. I was doing research on this for yeah. a possible storyline. It actually warps your mind and how you view society, how you view intimacy, and how you treat other people. And in a weird way, I think he captured that. I know Michael based this play off of the Steubenville case mm-hmm. that happened with the jocks, and it's this not gray area, but new form of rape, which is women pass out, they don't give consent, which in the past would be considered that's on you. That's the fault of the woman. And now our culture has evolved, fortunately, to a point where we realize if you're not giving consent, that's rape. Even if the person might have wanted to do it, right. it's still rape when someone doesn't say yes or right. approve. And I remember in the Bill Cosby case, there was a woman who said that, who went out with Bill Cosby, and sh- she was drugged. And the next day, there was money by the dresser, and she realized what was what happened. And she said, I felt dirty and weird because I would have had sex with him anyway. But he turned it into rape. But at the same time, in her mind, she's like, well, is it rape? Because I would have had sex, but then you drugged me, right. which is strange. So it is rape. It and is. I feel like Grace <laughs> Mathias is sort of in that situation where she was attracted to Jeff, obviously, but still, it is rape when you're not allowed to give consent. And, and I felt like this play talked a lot about that. And then it talked about the culture of rape as it carries through generation after generation. And it's almost in mm. our genes, like war, how we treat each other. And it just carries on. And women are complicit in rape culture as well as men. It's men's fault to solve it. But how women sort of go along with it like Grace's best friend and mm-hmm. cheerleader mm-hmm. and sort of approve of it because they have their own shame and their own trauma they're dealing with. And the best way to deal with trauma when you're under a group that's being assaulted is to either pretend like it doesn't happen, to say it's my fault and your fault and not the other people's fault. And that's how the Sabine women in that painting allegedly got through it. Being raped by the Romans and creating the Roman Empire was sort of moving on with their life and never addressing the trauma. And they're written out of the history books just like many women who are raped and abused are written out of the history books as this incident that happened that we're not going to talk about and focusing on the male drive of history. Anyway, I've talked too much about this, <laughs> but yes, that's, I really enjoyed it. And I, I was wonderful to see how it progressed. It is a little bit slack in places. It does have scenes that sort of meander and repeat themselves mm-hmm. and are maybe a little bit too jokey in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then it really comes back home at the point of, uh, I don't want to spoil it. At the point of some important moments, the jokes work. Right. Uh, I felt like you could probably trim like 10 minutes out of it. Mm-hmm. But overall, I still really enjoyed it. And, and it delivered a huge impact on me afterwards. And I wish there could have been talk back to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. The ending was really strong. I thought it was very affecting. The play as a whole, I thought, was a little bit disappointing for me in the, in the respect that so many of the characters were really just archetypes and they were not well developed and I thought a lot of their actions seemed kind of stereotypical and not uh, clearly motivated by anything in particular. So you have like the media acting like this, you know, tabloid media and then you have this lawyer acting like such a like stereotype of a like not understanding, not empathetic hard-charging lawyer, and then you have the neighbors being these, like, totally weird stereotypes of 
uncaring people. And then you have the core characters who I just I just wanted to I just wanted for them to be better developed as humans as opposed to these kind of archetypes that we see in society acting out based on like the rape culture as a culture and not as a series of individual decisions. But like I said, I thought the ending was particularly affecting in the sense that it tied together the Sabine women story with this contemporary story. Mm -hmm. I was very surprised at the playwright's ability to merge those two things so effectively. I did not expect that to be such a useful technique in storytelling. I did want to ask you guys, you raised this, Patty. Um, At one point during the play, the actress who plays Grace, who um, we should mention her name because she was was fantastic. fantastic. She was in The Wolves, too, right? That's Susanna Perkins. At one point during the play, her character stands in front of the audience wearing a hoodie unzipped with no other clothing on. And, Patty, you called that necessary. I, I have been debating that scene in my head since I saw it. it I, I don't understand the role of the actors being nude in that scene. And it felt to me gratuitous and a little bit I don't know. It just didn't... I just don't understand why that actress needed to be nude in that scene. And I'm curious to know what you guys thought about that moment and why you thought it worked or didn't. I guess necessary isn't quite right because I feel like maybe it could have been as affecting, but I didn't necessarily feel that it was gratuitous. I, I, I felt that it was her sort of moment of... Like understanding what had just happened to her and feeling bare, feeling naked. And yeah, maybe it didn't literally need to be there, but it, I, I don't, I can't, I don't know. I can't, I guess I can't really explain why I didn't feel like it was exploitative because I've certainly seen shows where I'm like, this doesn't need to be happening, but maybe it was just part of the whole that made, that made it work for me. It wasn't just that moment. Any thoughts on that, Oren? I didn't think the text supported that moment, nor did the acting. So it did stand out for me. It made me uncomfortable, which obviously was part of the goal mm-hmm. of, of doing that. But if you're going to stage something where it's about rape and the woman is the only one that's nude and the guys are hiding their wiener at every chance they get on stage and turning their back to the audience... I sort of go, not just as a gay man, like, come on, man, that's cheating. Like, show it too. Yeah. But also, uh, you're sort of, in some subtle way, reinforcing this stigma of uh, women are property, but guys' genitals have to be covered and they get to turn their back and all these other things. If we're going for, she reaches a point where she's mad, insane, and she's laid bare and naked then I feel like you need the opposite at the beginning in that she's covered up or she's very conscientious about her body so that when you see her naked and exposed on stage, you see how she's been destroyed in some way, uh, which wasn't really in the text, as well as her being, quote unquote, a fat pig, which wasn't in the text at all because I'm like, she's skinny and beautiful. I'm confused. 
Yeah. But I do understand there are many skinny, beautiful women who are called fat pigs yeah. in high school. And Girls are tortured that. in junior right. high and high yeah. school. So yeah. But she's like skinny, no. not even an that's, ounce of that's a As a, a larger woman, that is a part of any sort of media and entertainment that drives me insane because you have, this is a personal issue, but, you know, especially with actresses, when you place a, a less thin woman next to a very skinned woman, they might look bigger, but that doesn't make them what society deems as fat. And maybe that's she's standing next to that cheerleader, even though they were probably about the same size or whatever, but they put her in those big bulky sweaters. Um, I, What I noticed, and maybe this is my internalization of this rape culture, is that her breasts were covered with that hoodie. And to me, that almost is the gratuitous over-sexualization of a, of a female body, mm. not as much the, I'll use the correct term, vulva, um, because that almost is, that scene, like you said, in porn, that, that's not shown as much um, in just easily mainstream accessible culture. So I, maybe that's what I was was less gratuitous to me. We couldn't see her breasts, which are the things that are like oogled more than than a woman's actual sex organs. In relation to body image, uh, this is the only time I'm going to bring up This Is Us. We were trying to cast the uh, character whose main battle is food and mm-hmm. losing weight, Kate, the younger version of her when she's six and 12, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, it was such a struggle to find large actresses who were children and who were teenagers in the media capital of the world. And I was thinking, well, I know there are girls out there who can sing and dance and act who are overweight, but we have filtered them out, even at a child's age, and a teenage age so much that they don't even exist. You send out a wide search. It's like, really? This is all we have as far as trying to get cast because we have brutalized them and told them to go away so much that we're losing out on so many talented actors who could play that role, who are other-bodied or differently-bodied and abled and voluptuous or overweight or fat or whatever you want to call it and have talent and have beauty and have shine they're told to lose a bunch of weight and go away until they do so. And so that could also be the problem with just casting because yeah. of culture that we've created. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like 30 years ago, there were so many different types of bodies you'd see on, in, on TV and film. You'd see people with big noses that were weird and slightly broken, people with Jufros, people kind of fat, people just hanging, letting it all hang out. And now more and more when I look at people in the media and it's trickled down to theater, everyone has started to look like not only the same type of white person, but like they all work out at the same gym. Mm, yeah. And they Mark have Fisher the same. Fitness. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> and I look at, the, I'm like, Oh, this is all Equinox sort of fitness trained, uh, almost Nazi body regimen that is required to even be seen in public or mm. acknowledged. Otherwise it's go away. Yeah. To wrap up, I want to applaud playwrights realm for, providing significant supplemental materials about rape, about being a survivor. It's in the playbill, it's on their website, and I think it's fantastic to provide that additional material to audience members. Um, 
in the context of this play. Yeah, it also touches on Michael's thoughts on being a man writing this role, which mm-hmm. I thought was important, or this play, sorry, which I thought was important to acknowledge and to discuss as well. So that plays through September 23rd, and the tickets are 45 to $60. I will note that I have seen availability on TDF, so there are some discount tickets out there. It's worth seeing. Okay, next up, On the Shore of the Wide World, Oren. That is playing at Atlantic Theater Company. I believe it opened up a week ago officially. Uh, It's by Simon Stevens and directed by Neil Pepe, who is the artistic director of Atlantic Theater Company. And the plot is a working class British drama about intersections of people dealing with a tragedy that bonds them together. And so there's a lot of overlapping themes of loss and betrayal among a family and then the extended family, these grandparents, and then the family of the family, a girlfriend and someone who the father's working with. And so you see the ripple effects of this tragedy. Uh, Stevens breaks it up by twisting the timeline around so you don't fully figure out what the tragedy is until about halfway through. Um, And that's the main trick of the play. Overall, I thought it was a pretty bland and pedestrian and middle-brow, sort of a mashed potato of mediocrity uh, and checking off every single thing you would for a British working-class comedy, like the parents argue. Uh, I think one reviewer says the mother breaks the teacup, check. Mm. Like they went through all the things you expect to see in a working working British drama, excuse me, And he dutifully went through that and then made a timeline twist to make it different. There wasn't anything really new. There wasn't anything aesthetically new or appealing, nor was there anything in the content that was that interesting to me. I overall found it uninspiring and dreary and kind of a waste of uh, precious resources of these actors in this space. Um, I remember at intermission, I walked outside and I was thinking about, should I give this another chance? <laughs> and another woman walked out and she was like, ugh. And we started talking. And she actually worked for a very prestigious company I won't name. And she was just like, this is the worst. This is just white nonsense. By the way, this is an older white woman. She was just like, this is just white nonsense and whining and so boring. And then we debated when they flickered the lights or they told people, you know, one minute, and we were like, should we go back in? And I was like, well, it might get better. I don't think it will, but I'm already here. I, and I was like, why not? We both talked ourselves into going back in. Uh, and then we got out of there, and she was like, see, I told you. I was like, you're right. It didn't get better. It just sunk into this puddle of sadness and just really bad middle-brow pedestrian uh, art done with a lot of money. Um, mm. It was insipid. <laughs> Patty? I agree. Um, I thought I, at the beginning even, I, I was like, this is what I would write if I weren't British and were writing like the dialogue, like this is what British working class people sound like. Um, I, I thought... Th- there was a lot of it made me uncomfortable because issues were came up and then were never actually fully addressed. Like there was a lot of abuse discussed that I think 
he thought he he did address. I do think he thought he did address it, but it wasn't actually addressed. It was mentioned. It was mentioned, but then never really discussed. And there were a couple of times both sort of patriarchal characters, the grandfather and the father, said to their wives that they weren't that they weren't dressing for them anymore. And those are two such small moments in it, but it really made me very angry because also neither of those women really addressed that at all, specifically in in the second scene, the latter scene of the the father and and the wife. I don't remember anyone's names. They were forgettable. Yeah, I agree. And it just felt like I've seen this done and I've seen it done better and... I, I, I didn't contemplate leaving an intermission, but I understand that impulse mostly because I was here for this podcast and I've never left a show at intermission. Um, how many shows have you seen that you haven't left a show at intermission? I've seen hundreds of shows. You are a soldier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe you're right though. That's my thought process that maybe something will happen that even if it's so bad that I remember it, you know, I don't know, but no. And the end, it was like, sort of like you said, sad. It just was like resignation. Like those, the, it ended with the, these three generational male characters just sort of, they just, it just ended. It just went into the ether and no one knew, I think, that that was the end of it when we saw it. Did you yeah, get that Yeah, the audience feeling? was confused when I saw it. The lights just slowly faded out. And people looked at each other like, can we go? Mm-hmm. Are, do we have permission to get up out of our seats? We'll applaud as we're getting our coats and then skedaddle. Yeah. And I know this is a New York Times theater critics pick, but you can tell the play's uh, vitality by the audience. And my play was 90% white people who were straight up snoozing in the audience. A few people left. A lot of people were just mm-hmm. like drifting off, looking at the set um, and wondering how did this get past the gatekeepers of culture in New York City and the extensive reading process that goes on for so many plays that have much more interest, uh, aesthetically Mm -hmm. uh, dynamic themes and uh, characters that I actually care about. Yeah, I think I think if I I looked into it and I believe it was first produced in 2004 because there's also some talk of 9-11 and Wait, was that this one? Ooh. Yeah, 2004. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, great. <laughs> Ho-hum. So that's um, not that long ago, but I guess long ago enough to make these these issues that aren't addressed, they were okay to not actually be addressed then. It just felt so dated to me that these, these issues wouldn't actually be discussed and that we could pat ourselves on the back for suggesting that the grandmother should leave the grandfather without anything actually happening. It was an old baby play. Old baby plays are plays that are dated by the time they're birthed. And this came out, <laughs> yeah. this baby came out with a walker and a beard <laughs> by, in 2004. And now it's pretty much on its last legs. Mm. So it's so interesting because this play, as you mentioned, was first produced in London in the mid-aughts. And it won the Olivier Award for Best New Play. Yeah, of course it did. 
Well, no. I, I, what do you mean, of course it did? Say more. So many British plays that come over that are lauded for showing working class people have been reviewed by people who have no connection to working class culture. Oh, yeah. And they've come to New York City. There was a play two years, there was a two-hander that I saw a year and a half ago on Broadway that had all these awards and five stars and it was about working class, real gritty people. And me and my friends saw it and a few of them were angry that I'd gotten them free tickets at an admission. <laughs> They're like, you brought me to this. And I was like, hey, look at all these five stars. And we tried to figure out how come there's so many bad British dramas that are about working class people written by rich people, reviewed by rich people, that then are foisted upon the American audiences as high class art that actually are things we've seen 30 years ago on TV. Mm. Uh, and I think it is that disconnect from actual class structure and just showing it on stage is considered daring or interesting or innovative. And it's none of those three things. And I think that is the, re the loophole. If you want to get around the loopholes in culture, if you're black, write about the civil rights of slavery for white people. Mm -hmm. If you're a white man who's rich, write about working class people making sandwiches and struggling and yelling at each other. And you will get prizes for being gritty and real. Do you think this was more relevant when it was first produced? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, the the class issue I think I've I'm not so up on like British theater as I could be but I do know that that's been addressed a lot recently where um England actually was a place where for a long time especially on television you had people of as we referenced earlier of all shapes sizes faces um and it was a it was all white because it was still England but um now it's it's getting closer to the American structure of uh, training costs money. So it's rich actors and rich critics and rich producers. Well, they're always rich, but putting on, like you said, working class productions. And and yeah, I think it was for the audience that it was made for. It was relevant, but that's not the people that the show was about. Okay, well, let's move on. <laughs> I think Simon Stevens works best when he's talking about his own people, which are upper middle class to upper class white people in Britain. Then these tricks work better because the characters feel more honest. Are there plays of his that you like? He taught us at a workshop at Royal Court hmm. Theater. So we read some of the samples of his work. And there was a play, Punk Rock works a little bit better. It so doesn't Punk quite... Rock, I did not like. No, no, I didn't like it. I saw it at Odyssey MCC. Theater in LA okay. last year. I didn't like it, but I felt like it worked better, even though I know we're waiting for the event to happen and a lot of it drags. And then there was a play about a relationship that begins with, uh, come on, let's go to the airport. And it's like a wintry night that I thought, this is at least interesting in what you're doing in time. If you're not going to say anything, at least add an aesthetic sheen mm. over the nothingness that you're doing. <laughs> Uh, and I feel like when you're not saying anything, it's best to work with your own people because then you get all the quirks really quickly. You don't have to check off a list of like the grandfather who beats his wife. Ugh. Check Who's and drinks. Yep. Check and, and you're kind of like and, and smoke secretly. Check anyway. Yeah. So just a thought: if you're gonna check out Simon Stevens stuff, make sure there are rich white people cast in it, and it's about rich white people. Right. And he, it might be worthwhile. He also or Matilda. adapted Curious Incident, which was good, but again, that's not his work. So. Yeah. Okay, so that's at the Atlantic through October 8th. The tickets are $65, but Yikes. they're also available on TDF for $30. Okay, so the next play we saw is called In a Little Room. It is written by Pete McElligott and directed by Patrick Vassell. 
uh, and it is at the Wild Project. This play features a cast of three, two main characters who are in a hospital waiting room, and there's a third actor who plays multiple characters who comes in and out of the space. And I would describe it as kind of a Beckett-esque play that is about the existential issues of death and the basic dilemma is whether it is, as the survivor, whether it is better to have your loved one taken quickly and not be able to say goodbye or whether it's better to have a longer illness but get the opportunity to say goodbye. I am curious, before I give any of my thoughts about the play, to know whether you two have anything to add about that basic description, because I find plays like this are easily interpreted very differently depending on the viewer. It's not like this happened, then this happened, and that was the point. The plot's irrelevant. It's really just a philosophical exercise. And so do you guys have anything to add just to my basic description of the play? It's like line or no exit. Yeah. Those plays about waiting and come from a long lineage of plays about waiting that allow you to explore the human condition and characters that you set up in a world where... Anyway, that's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To... Uh, no, I think you hit it. I sort of assumed it was going to be about purgatory, and I take that back. I don't think that that was the... the right. I read the description, and I was like, oh, I get it, which is shows you know my own assumptions, but... Mm-hmm. So, you know, with plays like this, I think that it depends. I think, as I already said, I think it can hit people very differently depending on the mind space that you're in when you sit down to see it. Unlike your average plot-driven, character-driven show, which I think has more of a neutral presentation. You know, I didn't really find the debates that our characters were having to be that interesting, to be honest. I didn't think it had any kind of revelatory commentary on the philosophical debate that they were having. I mean, you basically present two horrible situations and then have people debate which one is worse. And that while occasionally an interesting mind exercise, I don't... I just don't, I don't really see the why put so much effort into presenting that in this context on this stage with these actors. I will say that I thought like the production was very well executed. Um, I thought the set was very nice. I thought the actors did a great job. But I just thought like the meat of what they had to debate was not that thought provoking. I, I agree insofar as what you, how you described it was the only real debate that they had. So it was 90 minutes of that. There were no other real issues that came up. It was sort of rehashing that same issue over and over again. It took us a while to get to the issue because there was... There was a lot of coyness, and I understand that you're, you want the audience to sit there and be like, why are they there? When are they going to tell us why they're there? And it was a little, for, for a one-act, hour-and-a-half play, it was a little too long to be so coy. But no, I agree. It, I was like, yeah, I see both sides. And it didn't change my mind either way. Um, I did find it interesting that in most of those other situations of the the quote-unquote waiting plays, we sort of know they're stuck there. And especially for one of the characters, we didn't get for a long time why he was even there and why they couldn't just leave. I find myself in a lot of these plays being like, just 
in this situation, there was no alternate reality for why they couldn't leave. If you're going to do something like, uh, I believe the director is Luis Buñuel, The Exterminating Angel, which was a movie in the 60s, black and white, where a group of rich people gather for a dinner party and then can't leave. But they address that. They uh, put a lantern on it, is what they call it. Mm -hmm. When you say, like, we have this dilemma. Well, someone has to address it directly by having an invisible field, a psychic invisible field where someone goes, well, I'm out of here. And then they stand up and you see them staring at the door and then they just sit back down. They're like, make you note like there's something that's preventing people psychically from leaving this space. Mm. And it's actually a spiritual, existential angel of death that sort of has a net over this room. And it's preventing people from actually walking through a door. But the door is right there physically. We can see it. They just can't walk through it. I would have liked to have had something like Mm. that. I thought the first... 20, 30 minutes was way too sitcom jokey. Yeah. And I, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. He's a slob. He's the neat freak. This is, you know, the odd Felix. couple. Yeah. <laughs> and the third character was the most interesting. Can we have a spoiler alert? Go for it. Okay. It's about hell, I think. It's pretty clear I about hell. Right. <laughs> and the person who they spill coffee on at the beginning is the devil. Hmm. And so to me, it was a funny joke of like, what happens when you spill coffee on the devil? And it sort of sets off this whole collection of events that brings them to this moment of deciding their fate that they would rather die than mm-hmm. go on with their lives. And I thought the character of the devil slash hospital inspector was the most interesting. And I wanted to hear more from him than the other two characters, the odd couple characters. Because yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, I get what you're doing. Yeah. But what does the devil think? And I, and I really enjoyed the joke of the three guys yeah. in hell. And what what do you do? What do you wish for? Um, and the nonsense of it at the end, the punchline is nonsensical, which fits with the uh, existential purposelessness of life. Uh, I did start to enjoy it after 20, 30 minutes. I will say the first 20, 30 minutes, I was rolling my eyes and looking like, oh. And then I started laughing a little bit and it snuck in. So it made me wonder why couldn't they have cut 10 minutes minutes off the beginning since we know who the characters are and we sort of guess what's happening and cut out a lot of the jokiness. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a young writer and he has a a definite voice that is strong and I would go to see another play if he had it in New York City or off, off Broadway somewhere. But I feel like the main thing that I've learned at school and outside of school with people who have voices isn't to add stuff, it's to take away stuff. And Russell Simmons uh, said he, that he wasn't a producer, he was a reducer. <laughs> when people come mm. in and they're presenting to him, they have their hat that they wear, they have their <laughs> fancy dress, they have their jewelry they're wearing, and they have all the stuff that's costuming. And his job as a reducer is to say, do you wear that hat normally? No, then take it off. Do you wear those shoes normally? No, I wear sneakers. Then take that off and put on sneakers. Do you wear that suit? No, I wear a jumpsuit. Then take that off and put on the jumpsuit and you have Run DMC. Mm -hmm. Back in the age where all the rappers were getting dressed up like Sugar Hill Gang and these Mm. costumes, he was like, no, let's reduce this down to the essence of who you are. And then we can make art from that solid platform. But we can't make art from a solid platform when you're giving me this false artifice on top of false artifice on top of false artifice. I felt like 
for this playwright, I want to take him aside and reduce mm. a lot of the sitcom jokes and get at who are you? Why did you write this? And say, strip away that joke. The audience is smart enough to hang around with you for your interesting voice, but your interesting voice is being buried underneath all of this uh, positioning that you're doing to show that you have an education in drama. And that's not interesting to me at this point in my life, to show that you went to school and know how to create a drama. What's interesting to me is your voice that is there. And after 20, 30 minutes, it starts to rise up from the mud of slapstick Mm -hmm idiocy and be known and then it sort of sinks and meanders down a bit but I want to see more from this writer I I am a discriminating person when it comes to plays but I am also an optimistic person (laughs) Uh, there are plays like On the Shores of the Wide World where I go back for the second act and if it disappoints me I say it but there are also plays like In a Little Room where 10 minutes in I'm like oh this is bad 20 minutes in I'm like oh it's still not good and then something yeah. begins to crack for me and it's not necessarily a good play by the end but it is an interesting play that's sort of buried underneath a lot of falseness and I would like to see him strip away that falseness and get at who he is and find that director or dramaturg who can reduce him to his essence. Okay, well, that's at the Wild Project. It runs through September 24th, and the tickets are $15. So for our final topic of discussion, we're going to do something a little bit different, which is that Aaron and I went to see a visual art show that had no element of performance to it. I don't think we've ever discussed anything exactly like this on the podcast before. But it's super interesting, and it's the Kara Walker exhibit at Sycamore Jenkins and Company, which is on 22nd Street. And it runs through October 14th. And it's totally free to go and hang out at the gallery and view these amazing Hmm. pieces of art. So, Oren, why didn't you tell us about it? Well, I went twice. (laughs) The first time was two weeks ago on a Saturday. And I was hanging out with a friend who works as a puppeteer for Sesame Street. So, of course, you invite her to see Kara Walk exhibit on race, uh, (laughs) rape, sexuality, and horror of America. And we walked around the room and the images wash over you because they're so harsh. Mm. And there are a lot of uh, cartoon archetypes that she's drawing, mostly in black and white, until you get to the back room where there's a little bit more color with browns and red and browns and greens, excuse me. But mostly it's silhouettes and black and white harshness to reflect this uh, horror dynamic. And you walk around and you see these elements of like the jigaboo or the thug, or the gangster, the white KKK, you see these images, and you're sort of like, yes, yes, I'm familiar with that. And you're, you're satirizing them by putting them on there and putting them juxtaposition with other images. But as we were walking around, a tour guide came in who was talking about the exhibit, and I guess this guy earns money by going on Gallery Row and inviting people and talking about the exhibits. Oh. So a bunch of tourists were there, and I was like, great, I'll get a free education while this guy's talking. I'll just listen in on what he's saying. And he was describing the paintings, and it made me viscerally uncomfortable mm. uh, to see this older white guy say, like, sure. this is the slave, she's getting <gasps> raped by this woman. Like, to go through the, the list of things that were on up there and I realized that that maybe was the point this artwork is being seen in a 90% white audience 
And mm. their way of processing that is the performance element of that. Mm. Seeing people in relation to the portrait, they're pointing at it and how they, how they position themselves becomes almost uh, people watching by putting a very uncomfortable object in a space and seeing how people sort of circumambulate around these uncomfortable objects and laugh nervously or take a picture gang sign or do all these things similar to her sphinx in brooklyn a few yes. years ago where people were taking pictures by the sphinx's uh genitals like making fun of it when it was about uh, black women being objectified and used to commodified and at first uh people online thought someone should tell them not to do that mm-hmm. that's wrong because this sphinx should be seen and viewed and taken in as such in this particular way. And I was like, actually, no, it isn't. Because if this is the way they're thinking in the Sphinx, in this setting, this is the way they think. So it's important to see that. Yeah. Uh, and he was going through these paintings and a little argument started with another person in the tour who was a black artist, which made it more interesting. Yeah. And they engaged in this back and forth and what the images mean and how Kara Walker is a uh, controversial figure in the black community because she's lauded in the white community for Mm. sort of uh, bringing out these tropes before white people like slavery and uh, what rich white people love that shit. You present (laughs) slavery and pain with like an ironic twist or like a self-aware twist and they just eat it up. They're obsessed with it. And so a lot of black artists look at that and they have conflicted feelings about it. Like, well, you're exploiting it by Mm -hmm. showing it. Well, then the other question is, well, do you not show it? Right. Number three, this is the art world. Do we just pretend like it doesn't exist? Or is this a Trojan horse that you're giving people what they want, but then you're inserting a seed that can ripen much later? I don't have an answer for this. These are all questions I had as I was watching people juxtaposition to these huge canvases of a pyramid of people getting raped, tortured, killed, disemboweled, uh, lynched, uh, doing trapeze artistry around the lynching and all these uh, absurd, violent uh, images that she sort of throws onto the canvas. So it took a few tours around to let it seep in. And then I went last week, uh, yesterday, because I was meeting with the British director, and rather than having coffee, I thought, let's just meet here. It's free. It's in a central location. We'll have something to talk about. uh, And then we can go get coffee anyway, which is what we did. And she knows Kara Walker for her silhouettes a few years ago Mm -hmm. that she brought to London. And that's what she's kind of known for before the Sphinx. Uh, And so I'm just getting to know her. I'm fascinated. I love the, I don't want to say controversy because it sounds like someone who's being controversial for the sake of uh, ginning up uh, interest. But the discomfort and the unease that I have and other people have around the images and how it sort of seeps in. That's what really fascinated me. I love that you managed to find a performative element to the experience. Way to tie things into the central (laughs) theme of the podcast. So if you have seen Kara Walker's cutouts, this is basically, images very similar to the cutouts, but as paintings and as silhouettes larger on the wall. So if you can imagine a kind of Renaissance style painting, kind of like Michelangelo style, Mm. but the content of the painting is as 
are undescribed images depicting slavery and torture and rape and horrible things. So kind of like Hieronymus Bosch style. One thing I think is interesting about Kara Walker's work that's happening right now in New York City is an exhibit at the Brooklyn Art Museum that is on the history of lynching in the United States. And it takes a bunch of artwork about race and slavery and the horrors of lynching. And it combines it with some videos that were made by the Equal Justice Initiative which is a nonprofit advocacy organization that is trying to raise money to create a memorial to the lynching victims in the United States, which there currently is not one of those. Mm. And as part of this exhibit is a small display of Kara Walker's cutouts. Sorry, I have a cold, so I'm saying <laughs> my pronunciation's not great. I don't I know how to pronounce the name Walker. That <laughs> was not a mispronunciation, that was a cold interference. So anyway, this exhibit at the Brooklyn Art Museum, I think, really brings the reality of her cutouts um, to such a stark and visceral point because you are seeing her art in the context of the reality uh, that is the history of this country. And having seen that exhibit, which I strongly urge you to go to, it is the perfect marriage of art and advocacy. It is so mm. excellent. Um, and, then I, and then I saw the gallery exhibit, and it just, the whole gallery exhibit I viewed in that context, and it was extremely powerful. I think her artwork has, you know, such a dichotomy of being so beautifully produced and depicting such horror. And you, you merge those things together, and it's a real dissonance. It, it's very, it's hard to absorb it all at once. I'm not surprised that you felt compelled to return to it, because it sticks with you, and you, you want to revisit it to try to obtain a deeper understanding of it. It's the kind of artwork you do not put up in your house. Yeah. Because it'll give you nightmares, but it belongs in a museum alongside this advocacy as a reminder, a historical cultural totem of not only our past, but our future if we don't start to address the underlying issues that are plaguing this country and that have since the beginning. It's the same two or three things. Mm -hmm. It ain't that complex, people. It's complex in our defensive mechanisms we created to not mm -hmm. address them. Mm -hmm. We've created entire industries to not address the two or three things that are the original sins of America. And so I feel like one part of me as a black artist thinks it's cheeky and controversial to uh, do these things so that rich old white people are titillated and get off, get their rocks off. Uh, and at the same time, it, it is necessary. And people should be doing it. And it, there should be a conversation. Just like the Sabine women, uh, men should be writing about rape because it's rape culture. And men are the main mm -hmm. drivers of it. White people should be writing and doing stuff about race because racism is mainly driven by white people. Yeah. Uh, and black people should be able to satirize and do whatever the fuck they want because, <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the way it is until we live in a post-racial colorblind culture, which we do not. I mean, we are seeing the 
flattening out of America, the one dimensionality through corporations and gentrification of America mm -hmm. and turning every corner into a Dwayne Reed and Citibank. Uh, but there is one loophole in that flattening out and one dimensionality of America, which is black people. And they will always be the holdout because they were the people who were left out from the very start. And they refused to be one dimensional because they were never invited to the party. And so that's why most American culture that is new and exciting from blues to hip hop and rock and roll and everything in between tends to be driven by the people who are left out in the cold. And until we're brought in, we will continue to be on the outside defining and redefining and transforming and moving it forward until it gets assimilated and appropriated and deadened by mainstream white culture. So you have until October 14th to see the gallery exhibit and the exhibit I mentioned at the Brooklyn Art Museum is until October 8th. Noted. Yes, yeah, strongly <laughs> recommend we'll make it out to those. And there yeah. are a whole bunch of other galleries on that road that you can I'll, walk in I'll through. I'll get that guy's tour. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stopped by at 2.30 yesterday because I thought he would be yeah. there again, but I must have missed him because I saw another tour leaving. Yeah, weird. So around I, 2 to 2.30, there are tours walking through that you can like eavesdrop in on. I don't, so that's just so fascinating to me that someone wouldn't be like, hey, we want to make sure that these people are getting the information that's like legitimate about this artwork but they just let someone come in. He wasn't with the gallery, right? You said you think he just takes people up and down to the galleries and... I think he has his own private list of That's people crazy. who he, they pay him $20, $30, and he takes them through the galleries. And who knows, maybe he tosses a dollar or two to the gallery. Yeah. But you're inviting some people who normally wouldn't stay, well, or if they true. stay, they yeah. wouldn't understand what they're watching. And at the very least, he's pointing out stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I am not an art expert, right. but I can be like, slave, <laughs> rape. And he just points it out in the most garish, like, yeah, I got that. Thanks. blunt way. And then mm -hmm. he leaves you to deal with it. So, Which, yeah, I get the, the interest in that, especially from your perspective of like people watching and watching them actually deal with it or not deal with it. Um, but that's, I just, I can't believe that's allowed. I guess it's a good thing on some level that it is. But if I were, I kick that guy out of my gallery. But it's free and it's open to the public. I don't know. It just seems like misinformation. <laughs> okay, let's talk quickly about shows that we are excited to see. I haven't actually added anything to my agenda since the preview. So coming up, I have two heavy for your pocket. I'm seeing that too. K-pop. How did you get tickets to K-pop? I sold out. spent my own hard-earned <laughs> dollars to buy one. Every time I checked, it sold out until Kingdom Come. Well, um, I got in early on that one because I knew it would be popular. Yeah. What about uh, you guys? Anything else you have coming up? I'm seeing Charm mm -hmm. at MCC, which I'm very I excited it. about. Um, I haven't. I know about it, but I haven't. I don't want to hear any thoughts about it because um, I'm. I'm just excited, and I don't want anything to affect that. Um, my sister is coming to visit, and so I will be seeing Bette Midler and Hello, Dolly again. Oh, fun. Because I'm fancy. <laughs> um, and another sort of Broadway event, I'm going to take my nephew to his first Broadway show. I got us tickets to see Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I haven't seen. Um, but he's read the book, so uh, presumably all the British violence will be understood for him. <laughs> nice. I'm going to see Jeray Holders to have you from my pocket on Tuesday, I believe. And then I'm seeing The Portuguese Kid at MTC by uh, John Patrick Shanley on Wednesday. Mm. 
because I'm working in Midtown. So I'm a block away for this month. Before we move, before CBS moves us to Greenpoint in Brooklyn, I'm right across the street from MoMA. So if it's like anywhere in the 50s, I'm going to go see it. Miss Saigon may happen. Oh, wow. For the first time ever because it's right over there. TDF. (laughs) And then I'm going to do some cabareting. Yes. So I'm going to see. uh, I am rooming with a drag king, Murray Hill. Legendary Amazing. drag king. Yes, yes. So I'm going to her Joe's Pub performance in like a week or two. And then I'm seeing Michael Jackson's, uh, the living Michael Jackson's, mm. a Joe's <laughs> Pub cabaret, White Girl in Danger, next Monday. And then tonight I'm seeing Michael Jackson's teeth at 54 Below on the Feinstein, which is another cabaret. So this is my cabaret medley happening at the end of the month combined with a few other plays and Miss Saigon may happen I know it's Mm. Broadway so we don't talk about that but Mm. I'm always interested when I throw that out there the range of reactions usually more on disgust and anger and then there's always like 10% or 20% they're like I like it so we never say Miss Saigon people are like Mm. oh just awful and then there's like one person like it's it's you know it's not that bad well you know Max Mu contributor Deep Tran uh, did a Code Switch episode talking about Miss Saigon, which I highly recommend listening to in accompanying your journey to that yeah, show. Yeah, I'll have to listen to it too. I saw it not that long ago for the first time. I knew the music, obviously, but yeah, I've, I have many feelings about it that are sort of both on that because the music is so good. So there's me being like, but I love it. But yeah, it's it's Miss Saigon and it has a lot of issues, obviously. Yes. It invokes passion, which at least I love, even though most of the people who are passionate really dislike it. So, mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me for this conversation. It was wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. I feel so educated <laughs> and enlightened. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximo is at Maximo. Oren is at Oren Squire. Patty is at Patty with a Y. That's P-A-T-T-Y-W-I-T-H-A-Y. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Theatrical Media.